Hello and welcome to We're All Gonna Die and Other Fun Facts, a semi-regular, occasionally amusing, and rarely funny series of conversations on a random topic. Our episode today is a non-traditional episode. There is no guest. Um, in fact, what this podcast is, is the Zoom audio recording of me reading at the Father Bede Hines TOR Memorial Poetry Reading at St. Francis University, a place that is near and dear and truly special to my heart. Um, there is a video recording, but you know, there's students in it, there's other people in it. I figured in terms of respecting other folks' privacy, I would, at least to publicly share my reading, just share my audio file and cut off the Q&A and the introduction and just be me. And I know there's some folks that, you know, want to see the video and I'm, I'm sharing it privately. But for public front-facing, yeah, I thought I would do this and I thought I would cut to, well, just me reading. And yeah, try to enjoy it or not, I guess. I want to begin by saying just truly what an honor it is to be asked to do this. I want to thank St. Francis for having me back, for the Department of Literature and Languages for inviting me, to Paul Martin, Richard, and Barbara Gagenbach for making this possible. And I want to thank everyone for watching. Uh, again, this is Pittsburgh Poetry Friends, alums from my era, um, faculty, every, this is just fantastic. Uh, I was asked to share some memories of Father Bede before I begin my reading. And so I'm going to go about 30 minutes so you know, this is horror. This is unendurable. Just know that when the clock gets around seven thirty, it's like he's going to shut up in a minute. So let's take that pressure out of the room. Uh, I was asked to share some father memories of Father Bede before I begin my reading, and I would also like to take the opportunity to reflect on what my time at Saint Francis has meant to me. Father Bede was already a Saint Francis legend by the time I arrived on campus. Unfortunately for me. I did not know this when I met him. I was with Father Tom Carapella, someone many alumni from my era miss dearly, and I'm happy to know the campus celebration of Christmas is named for him. Anyway, we were in the sacristy when Father Bede walked in and Father Tom, knowing that I was thinking about becoming an English major with dreams of becoming a writer, enthusiastically introduced us to each other. I believe Father Bede said something like, oh, you want to be an English major? And I said, yeah, I guess. The only thing holding me back is I don't care about grammar and all that junk. I only care about writing and expression. Father Bede then blessed me and walked away silently while shaking his head. When I relayed this curious exchange to a, to a young lady I was romantically interested in at the time, she explained that Father Bede was a family friend and had a reputation for returning people's letters to them with proofreader's marks and red pen. I was, of course, mortified over what I had said. Everything had been ruined. However, I interacted with Father Bede a few more times and he remembered me and was always kind. And just think, not only did I become an English major, but I'm an English professor at a Catholic university and a published author, just like Father Bede was. So I guess you can say I really did become that someone. And oh, by the way, that quote uh, that you began with, that was one of my Duquesne students. That's what my classroom presence is. Completely wild. Anyway, my time at Duquesne has taught me that a sense of community and continuity 
that an English department reaffirms with their hiring decisions and as collegial bonds are made over time. Father Bede was a colleague to Dr. Labrie, who ushered in Dr. Weixel, who was there when Dr. Wozniak was both a student and professor, and the same with Dr. Cadwallader. And that's just the continuity within the English department. And to think Father Bede came to St. Francis as a student in 1939 or 40? That's only three or four hops via similarly long careers all the way back to the founding priests and brothers of St. Francis. I guess what I'm saying is Father Bede is the Kevin Bacon of St. Francis. We are all less than six degrees away from Father Bede, and folks at St. Francis won't be more than six degrees from Father Bede until perhaps the late 22nd century. And the thing about my most memorable exchange with Father Bede is not the conflict of what's more important between what we now know in composition studies as the difference between global and sentence level revision, but rather the fact that Father Tom and Father Bede were keenly interested in this person who just showed up on their campus. That their own commitment to Catholic higher education meant a deep investment in the whole person, in all aspects of humanity and the human experience as it exists through the Catholic liberal arts. While I'm a Catholic college professor, much like Father Bede, I haven't delivered a lecture in over a decade. I've never constructed a course with the syllabus, a course syllabus with the traditional literary canon in mind. And while I primarily teach writing, I've never constructed a whole class lesson around grammar. I haven't put a proofreader's mark on a student paper in over a year. And in fact, I doubt I will ever collect a piece of paper from a student again. I've never written a sonnet and none of the poems I'm going to read for you tonight will rhyme. And I sincerely doubt Father Bede ever presented a conference paper about the revolutionary virtues of hardcore punk. While we work in this profession in radically different ways, what I do carry forward from the legacy of Father Bede is this investment in the lives of students, even when they're being quite annoying, like I was in the sacristy on that day. To think about the legacy of Father Bede is to be reminded that through the liberal arts, that we care for the whole person and build whole people, which is why I consider St. Francis the place where my life truly began. A place where so many people took keen interest in my personhood and well-being, especially in times when I wasn't terribly interested in my own well-being. It was through the efforts of too many people to mention who made contributions to my life to the greatest gift I've ever received, an education formed by the Catholic liberal arts. As theologian Paul Farmer notes, Catholic social teaching is underpinned by a moral commitment to observe, judge, and act. I could not have even begun to be the person so actively engaged with the world without the gifts I received at St. Francis. As one of the blurbs in the back of my book says, my poems, quote, juxtapose beauty and ugliness without using one to apologize for the other. And in spite of our national terminal affliction towards bright-sidedness, I learned at St. Francis that culture is about celebrating, understanding, preserving all aspects of creation. Even though some of my poems deal with the unpleasant aspects of life and are written to promote discomfort, it is all part of a commitment to observe, judge, and act. And in this time where people struggle to think through complex moral problems, critically evaluate information, and recognize the depth of the human experiences of others, I recognize the value of my liberal arts education at St. Francis and all the skills that were honed in my years there. 
I have, would not have the rich, wild, and fulfilling life I'm enjoying without this gift. It has made everything in my life possible. And I think I'm just getting started, really. So if you were there when I was here, like Wozniak, Rosinski, Neely, and so many others, I thank you and I try to honor you with everything I do. This college among the pines that always manages to somehow punch above its weight. And for those of you who are students now, I remember when I was a student and guest speakers would come and I always wondered how I could become that kind of person that gives guest lectures and readings at college campuses. Well, here I am and I wanna tell you, if you want a life of creative adventure, you can have it if you want it. I know the pedagogy of student loan debt weighs on you, but there are many of us alumni who are out here doing interesting things, living fulfilling lives. You're already planting the seeds of such a life. And besides, in recent research conducted by Georgetown University Center for Education and the Workforce has concluded that on average, English and philosophy majors do better over the long run than their less fortunate counterparts who majored in business and biology. Do what you want to do. Never stop fighting for what is worthwhile. And know that while I decided I wanted to be a writer at 16, the first poem I'm going to read was the first poem that came out right sounding on the page as good as it did in my head, and it was written when I was 36. That said, an early version of one of the poems I will read for you tonight was in a collection that won the Carlson Award my senior year and is now in my book. As I was told before graduation, if you want to be a creative person, you're only racing yourself if you're worrying about not yet having success. So let's get started. This first poem is called St. John Minadeo. And it is the true story of how one of Pittsburgh's elementary schools got its name. Whenever I see a crossing guard's bright yellow raincoat, I think of St. John Minadeo. The car brakes failed, rolling out of control down Hazelwood Avenue. The driver honking, flailing one arm out the window. John pushing the last classmate out of the way a split second before martyrdom. Next poem is called, and this, uh, I'm not a real mystical kind of guy, but this poem came to me in, in a dream, complete. I changed two words in revision. It's called, it's a St. Francis poem. It's called, At the Moment He Was Conceived. At the moment he was conceived, his father, who had paused at the Franciscan seminary, emptied himself after swimming in a sea of sheets and skin, saw his reflection in his wife's pupils, one could only hope the moment was not ruined, contemplating divine judgment over choosing the wrong kind of biblical ecstasy. The boy, whose only memory of his father was set in a cancer ward, told me stories of an evil stepfather and the thousand invisible daggers passed around the dinner table. Years later, at the boy's wedding, his mother told me the story of the time he called on a landline from the very same campus that separated them decades prior. His voice was so much like his father's, she momentarily forgot what era it was and who she was talking to. At that moment in my mind, I heard the sound of a branch breaking. This next one's called The Secret City. Um, one footnote, historical reference. Uh, there used to be an abandoned loading dock. I guess the abandoned loading dock is still there in Lawrenceville on the Allegheny Riverbank, uh, where punks used to set up generator shows. And it was called Certain Death. 
So when I get to certain death, it was this loading dock on the Allegheny River that unfortunately the luxury condos came and you can't have generator shows anymore. Um, all right, it's called The Secret City. Punk mass ends with the sign of peace between friends and a five passed across the merch table to help the touring bands find the shadows of Cleveland or Philadelphia. Out of the rock room with a, sec a cloud of secondhand smoke into cool, thick night air, the silence of Polish Hill, the ringing ocean of sounds found inside a car the seconds before it starts. This is the skyline of the secret city whose citizenry are eager to trade sleep for spectacle on a school night. On the ride home, shows pass into memory on their way to legend. The tour tape on my front seat, permanent artifact of the intimacies of the scene. Bands ripping holes in time on these breathless nights. Tomorrow, I'll be in a meeting to compose a strategic plan trying to impress the administration and counting the hours to the next show, trying to relive what I just saw. The lights on a rain-wet Penn Avenue blink yellow as thousands of slumbering domestic dramas of the East End float by. I push the gas a little harder on the way to my own domestic tranquility, Nell and Libby waiting warm in our bed. I will be greeted with a mumble, did you have fun from Nell, four hours before her alarm goes off and a drowsy wag of Libby's tail. But for now, I'm burning with the street, nights in, street lights in this clandestine night. There are, of course, other sights to be seen this late. That time I saw Fox crossing Forbes, street racers on the parkway, all-night diner carnivals, certain death skinny dippers, dreams and philosophies whispered on porches. And there are, of course, deeper secrets, later nights, basement doors begging to be knocked on, scenes wilder, impenetrable. I could tell you more, but everyone has to find their own way in past the gates. Right, this is a St. Francis poem. Um, it's called Satellite. And if anybody is a fan of the Dave Matthews Band, your unredeemably terrible taste in music will be rewarded by knowing the reference of the title. My first terrible college roommate and I barely spoke, even after my belongings started to slowly disappear. Me, shy, angry, headbanger, theater kid, him, 6'8", hair, completely hairless center on the basketball team. After his side piece moved in, the silences of Giles Hall 109 became permanent. I never learned her name, but showered around her class schedule. And then there was the night I learned nothing wakes a person up more than the words, I think he's finally asleep, whispered from the top bunk. Muffled moans of forbidden ecstasy and a soft shimmy of bed springs from above blended perfectly with the only Dave Matthews fan song I could stand to listen to. And on this night, I thought jealously about the blissful sleep his girlfriend must have been enjoying in her room in St. Jones. And yeah, I thought about the times she sat up in bed, hidden, watching me towel off after I showered late at night, peeping Tom from the mother station until the uh, moment our eyes finally met. And 13 years later, when I heard an aortic aneurysm in his basement man cave took him permanently out of Fallout 3, that's when I remembered this moment of intimacy, someone's secrets I have seen now orbiting in eternity, and how I woke up the next morning to the sound of my headboard smashing rhythmically against the sheet metal cover over the heater. Another St. Francis poem, historical reference, 
the college radio station used to be in that tiny fourth floor booth in Schwab. This is called After the Graveyard Shift at the college radio station. After turning off the last light in Schwab Hall, I see through the front door a crescent moon, a semi-nude luminescent glory surrounded by falling frozen stars. Reflecting sickly orange security light, a satin white upper thigh, product of eons of evolutionary perfection and three glasses of Lambrusco from a dinner two days, decades past radiates. I stand transfixed, my ears still ringing from the monitor speakers, my mind wiped clean by the sight of youth, the full glory of youthful indiscretion, speaking to someone beyond the bushes until she feels like she's being watched. Our eyes meet, a candid moment, punctuated by a brisk sprint as tense arms hoist unfastened denim. My trance broken by the compressor of the soda machine, I spill onto the sidewalk. The building breathes a blat with a blast of cold air funneled through antique windows. Between two footprints, I see a glistening black abyss of wet asphalt surrounded by a phosphorescent yellow halo in the virgin snow. This poem is called Arriving in Westmont. Hopefully you'll be able to read it in the year 2025. My grandparents always wanted to become, always wanted to move up here, become hilltoppers, a nickname to show the mall rats below who won't be drowning in the next flood. But for the fear, looming fear of seasonal layoffs, the closest my grandparents ever got were graves in Grandview I could never find on my own. Settling for a West End duplex, he worked first shift, waiting for the bus before dawn, losing his hearing in a shower of sparks. My grandmother got bit by a rat at the bakery where she worked. I lost the socialist campaign buttons I found in their attic. On my way to pick up a dinner that to them a wedding feast for me is just boring Saturday night takeout. My uncalloused hands sign away what would have been a week's wages after the tip. I've worked hard to get here, but never at the mouth of a blast furnace. I was born during the last great flood. A long distance call from my mother as she was going into labor, followed by catastrophe. A local call three weeks later from a ham radio operator from Perth Amboy talking to someone in Morellville, claiming he was a friend of my grandfather who wanted to know if I was a girl or a boy. His health failing, they had to bring his first grandson as soon as I was ready to travel. When my parents called from the opposite end of the turnpike, he turned his chair around with his back to the television. For five hours, he stared at the door, waiting until he could hold me for the first and last time. All right, this is, uh, this is called Box Seat Video, Crescent, Pennsylvania. It's about the mini mall on Park Street in Crescent. Friday night payday flyers looking to annihilate the week. Mom shepherding kids in little league uniforms into minivans buzz over the busted pavement. My rust-laden Buick Century mingles in the parking lot with pickup trucks with missing tailgates. State store box seat video beer distro. The promise of pepperoni pizza to go around the corner. This might as well be the center of the known world. I'm here for Aftershock, Pabst, and a piece of Hollywood on VHS for when the lights go down in the living rooms of Cambria County. We're all here to break the boredom of watching the shrinking possibilities of small town days, a slight warm and fuzzy feel, a movie just boring enough 
there's no need to pause the tape before couch sex and our own little vision of heaven. This one's called it's watching, watching it's a wonderful life in 2017. George Bailey, every man's shibboleth conceived as Capra's sword against the rising tide of atheism. Identified by Ayn Rand as communist propaganda in an FBI report, protagonist of a Trumper's favorite mawkish holiday melodrama, shouts from a bridge that became a pulpit of all the closing doors of middle-class frustrations. Watching the film differ is di feels different now that we're all stuck in our own little Pottersvilles, dreaming of the kind of warm and cozy Bedford Falls that only exists in uncritical nostalgia. Mr. Potter wasn't supposed to become president, as if wasn't supposed to win, as if old George and the American idea was just too strong to be defeated, as all if all we needed was friendship, as if angels could redeem all the little capitalists, could redeem us all. Uh, this next one's called The Gift. It was mentioned I won the Tobin three times. One of the times I won the Tobin, I found research that is mentioned one of the fun facts in this poem. This is a gift. My first true moment of despair was in second grade when I fell into the toilet. I didn't realize the seat was up. This is when I learned what it meant to feel worthless as I sunk into the cold water. Later, watching 321 Contact, eating a TV dinner, they got into the death of the sun. Possessed by the image of the frozen sky falling on my little grave on an empty earth, I started screaming with a mouthful of mashed potatoes, inconsolable. I'm known for a cynicism that works its way into any conversational subject. Morbid fun facts about the gigantic penises de demons are supposed to have and how we could never see a quasar coming at the speed of light, turning us all into clouds of superheated gas. I ran into a former student the other day who still remembers the time I told her class about the liquefied remains of a corpse lost in air freight. I think the lesson was something about how to use a semicolon. But when you've lost sleep over the second law of thermodynamics, it's always time to have all the sex you can, get the fastest car, enjoy every sandwich. They say I'm fun at parties, but I just wanna help my friends by teaching them it's okay to die. All right, uh, two poems. These are the two poems that are in the Dreamers Anthology. They're also in my book. Uh, these, are my two, these are two awkwardly uncomfortable anti-racist poems. Um, and I will say there's a word in this first poem um, where, you know, in light of the attacks on Asian Americans, um, I just want to say this is in uh, maybe in solidarity. And if you really want this terrible era to stop, especially, well, for a white person, if you want this terrible era to stop, you have to confront these uncomfortable things and these ugly thoughts you've had and these stupid ideas that you believed in. If you want this to be over, and so here are two poems where I do that. This is called, They Already Built the Wall. They already built the wall. It's right there in the three-fifths compromise and every three-fifths compromise from there on out. They already built the wall because in elementary school, we used to call handball chink. And I had a mortgage and a master's degree before I knew what I was saying. They already built the wall because when my father sold our white flight suburban home to a family from Colombia, our neighbors came to the door to confront him about it. 
They already built the wall because during my expensive liberal arts education, I used to look down on people who had the jobs my expensive liberal arts education was supposed to save me from. They already built the wall because I used to think every mediocre white man with an acoustic guitar elegy for the world and women that were supposed to belong to him was an artist, but you can't spell crap without rap. They already built the wall because in 2016, it became perfectly clear to love one's country is to understand its flaws and everything else is just childish infatuation. And the fact that it took this long for me to notice means they already built the wall and I was on the inside. And this is awkward, uncomfortable, anti-racist poem number two. It's called The Morning After Antoine Rose Was Murdered by a White Police Officer. After a night of dreams haunted by the sight of life falling out of a body that belonged to the future, in the checkout lane, I learned a clerk at the North Braddock supermarket was with him an hour before, yet they apologized to me for consoling each other made me wait, as if my own convenience was more important than their shock and grief. I find myself passing through the back end of Wilkinsburg, folks everywhere standing outside, talking their ways through public trauma when it happened. Shuffle dropped me into Lucy in the sky with diamonds. How shockingly inappropriate are the Beatles, the warm and cozy marijuana haze Beatles at this moment. Of course, I'm saying all we need is a little more than just love, but I'm not willing to go full Adorno when he says to read poetry after Auschwitz is barbaric. However, what needs to be said is how frivolous a life lived as a citizen of Whitopia. This one is in uh, Recasting Masculinity. It's called When Hyperboys Meet at the Satanic Coffee Shop. Talking punk rock baseball with CB, Padres chats, dead boys mets over high test lattes and vegan black metal Twinkies. In rolls the Econo line with Texas plates. Out tumbles a drummer along with crushed empty energy drink cans. Hey, y'all have loud ass rock shows at this here coffee shop? Yup, we say, while pointing at the police station next door. Good, because I usually don't like to unleash it, flailing arms and invisible drumsticks, but I'm hemmed in by double marshals on each side. You know how it is. Watching the band load in, these men moving amps at double speed, speaking texts, I'm thinking about just how it is. We're the kind of boys teachers used to wring their hands over. And if I could tell you why that boy just won't sit still, if I could understand. But past 40, the engines of hyperactivity between my legs still won't let me alone. And the memory of standing in front of the double marshals spraying me with guitar fuzz is the only thing that will get me through sitting still during the next faculty meeting. All right, speaking of faculty meeting, I think there's a couple uh, Duquesne folks who are watching. Uh, I love my colleagues, but this is called Meeting Minutes. Sometimes during meetings, I look for the person who is the worst at holding their boredom, at hiding their boredom, sorry. Let me start that over again. This is a short way to get. Sometimes during meetings, I look for the person who is the worst at hiding their boredom. And I try to imagine what their skull looks like. 
Um, so I am still writing about, I mentioned Dr. Neely in my opening uh, little salvo there. I am still writing about the concepts that I learned in Intro to Philosophy and Modern Philosophy. And so I have these series of poems that are about philosophy and they're for G.S. Neely Esquire. And fun fact, one of the postulates who was in my modern philosophy class grew up to be Father Malachi. Yeah. And so this one is called Schopenhauer was right. And it was inspired by the second floor men's room in JFK. Ceiling drips onto ceramic tile, wet sinks and a row of blank faced mirrors. Urinals with automatic Cyclops eyes stand vigilant, spattered with mints and pubic hairs. Gushing wave of bran muffin and black coffee waits to burst into a ceramic lake. First stall, undigested corn floats amongst brown water and dissolved paper. Second stall, paper dispenser stands bolted to the wall with a mugshot expression. The cardboard cartridge smiles mockingly through dangling shreds of paper. There being no other options, I am swept with the sudden realization of just how long my life has already been. This one is called, uh, he, and actually he got to hear that one before he passed and he loved it. So, but I wrote a bunch more since. And so this one's called Bishop Berkeley in the men's room at the altar bar. And if you've had like Bishop Berkeley was this weird metaphysician who believed that if we don't perceive things, he was the one who asked the, if a tree falls question and if no one hears it, no, except this is somehow an abstract uh, proof of theology or something. Anyway, this is Bishop Berkeley. So if you can't perceive it, it doesn't exist. That's Berkeley's metaphysics. Deep in the bowels of the tacky rock club, I found you, Bishop George Berkeley, and your theory of the immaterial was tested. It was past the bathroom attendant and his offers of loose cigarettes and aftershave. Did the interior designer know your teachings on the necessity of perception when they lined the alcove or men pee with mirrors? Or did they just want to make the room bigger? Still, I found you when I found the back of my own head in the infinite space of my infinite heads there, the first time I saw it in real time outside of a barber's chair. And certainly for the first time while relieving myself, did I know for sure that the back of my skull really existed? So this was, I got three more, you're, 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 you're close. You're gonna survive this. You're gonna get your, your convocation credits if they still make you show up for stuff. It's, we're, we're, we're so close. So this poem, the first draft I did write as a St. Francis student, this was a Carlson award-winning poem and it's in my book. So, you know, the long, this is called Loretto College Town, 4 a.m. Sunday morning. Drowsy street lamps await to retire as sky begins to lighten. Saturday night fornicators sleep soundly on bare mattresses. Discarded beer sits in shiny blue cans kept cool by summer mountain night air. Franciscans in nearby monastery yearn for sleep as Sunday morning mass approaches. My drunken revelry reduced to a quiet buzz. The room no longer spins. I'm lying awake in bed with unsettling visions of tomorrow's hangover. Pulling my legs out from under sleeping puppy, I hope not to arouse his tail wagging suspicions. I can hear clocks ticking in the neighboring houses and the gentle whir of the refrigerator. 
while walking through the house, turning out all the lights and collecting dirty glasses for the sink. Passing through the kitchen, I unlatch the back door and step outside. The quiet here expands like star the starry night sky. It's too early for birds to sing. I slip off my bedclothes and step onto the grass. What would it be like to feel myself expanding into space? I wonder, too, if I'm the only one awake in this town, and if there's an unspoken bond amongst all people of singular moments of personal immodesty. Who else has experienced this? My professors? College presidents? The old ladies next door? And the spot where that happened will be the future Fine Arts Center. I live where the Fine Arts Center will be. Two more, this one's called uh, Johnstown Sleeps. Johnstown sleeps under the giant beautiful ruins of the machines of my grandfather's generation. And on the day they buried my great aunt Eleanor, they tore my grandfather's favorite bar down because Johnstown sleeps under the weight of bad trade deals and the even worse idea the future belongs to coal. Johnstown sleeps under the haze of uncritical nostalgia and evangelical theologies preaching personal satisfaction isn't the nihilism of the soul because God's chosen people always live in the country. And for every racist comment on every race baiting story on WJAC's Facebook page, the guy who drives around on MLK Day with a noose and a tribute to James Earl Ray in the back of his pickup enjoys a sense of belonging to every young person with an idea whose daily lesson is they've got to get out. Johnstown sleeps in the memories of my two-week summer vacations at Grandma's house, since burned down by an arsonist and the greatness of all this town's lost humane architecture because Johnstown sleeps. Johnstown sleeps and it won't wake up because of every grandstanding politician with an easy answer as to how to find the real problem in Philadelphia, in Washington, DC, somewhere along the border and the primal need to be better than somebody, anybody. Because when Johnstown sleeps dreaming only of the fantasy of a perfect past, never of a pragmatic future. Johnstown lies forever in the restless sleep of its pastoral nightmare. And last one, folks, you almost made it. This one's called Supermarket in Homestead, Pennsylvania. Oh, what thoughts I have of you this afternoon, Allen Ginsberg, as I immerse myself into grumpy middle age and the waterfront giant eagle. It started in the parking lot abnormally full for a weekday afternoon when I remember with slight dread, it's the first Friday of the month. I was busted right at the front door by a food demo specialist hawking oranges. She gave me my first hit of a real blood orange and a doorway opened to a deep and dark world of low acid with a hint of berry aftertaste. I was hooked right for life right before she told me they were all out. And it continued. They changed the design of the plastic bags for the bread I buy and the new layout. I used to know the store by the like the back of my hand, I grumble. So crowded. Where the hell are their vegetarian refried beans? The kind of coffee I like was discontinued too. I can't read the handwriting on my own list. Crisscrossing the aisles several times, a poem started to build into my mind. This store is a trough where misery feeds itself. 
Of course, to write this means humanity is a sty, and I'm just the prime porker. Then I noticed the woman next to me started to dance with her full cart to the Whitney Houston song cascading from above. Somebody's grandmother, like my own 20 years gone now, babushka and all, counts money in a white bank envelope. My cashier wears a union pin, reclaiming this ground once again from Frank Frick's army of Pinkertons. The promises of payday and the New Deal realized. It can be so easy to forget about my place at the common table of the human family. And to do so is to ruin one of the greatest words in the English language. Groceries. Thank you. Thank you for your attention. Thank you. Thank you. Even those of you who might have had extra other browser windows open, the tabs open, it's fine. It's Zoom. It's it's the world. It's the post-apocalypse. It's we survive, we're surviving the apocalypse. It's it's okay. Everything's okay. <laughs>